Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is April the 8th, 2015, and this is episode 1500, I'm sorry, 1552 of the Survival Podcast. And today we're going to talk about something I kind of threw around a little bit last week, the long, slow emergency, but not the one you've heard about in a book about oil. This has actually very little to do with oil as itself and more about the totality of resource needs of the population and the socioeconomic future of a, of a society that's, well, kind of headed to hell in a handbasket in a lot of ways, but probably not as immediately severe as most people that get into survivalism are expecting. Uh, an event horizon phenomenon. They, they say when you, if you could survive a black hole, um, as you approach the event horizon, you wouldn't even realize anything had happened. As your body began to be stretched out to, to the point where it would actually be as thin as a single human hair and thousands of miles long, uh, it would be actually a very slow process. People think of a black hole from science fiction. Like you get near it, you're in there, but that's not the way that it works. The affected area is massive, and the time it takes for that event horizon to actually cascade down into the abyss of black crushing gravity is actually a fairly long period of time compared to what you might think. And therefore it would be possible if we had interstellar space travel to be within a black hole's grip and maybe even have some of the members of the crew going, dude, we've got a problem. And a lot of other people going, "What's everything looks good. All the instruments are reading right. We seem to be heading in the right direction. Yeah, we're slowing down a little bit, but... Yeah, that's just part of the course. We'll we'll figure it out. The engineers will take care of it. That's kind of where I think we are in society. We're going to talk about that today and what it means for us as preppers and what we can do about it to be prepared for it emotionally and, and logistically going forward because I really believe we're going to have to do it for ourselves. I don't think there's a plan to fix it. I don't think there's a plan to even acknowledge that it exists from government or the corporate world right now. I think it's business as usual, suck what you can get, and sooner or later, ah, something will work itself out. And by the way, since we're the elite, it's not going to really hurt us, so we don't really care. I think that's what most of the elite think about this, and unfortunately for them and for us, I believe that they're wrong. We'll talk about that in just a minute. First, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you by helping to make sure the show's here for you Monday through Friday, five days a week. Sponsor of the day number one today, Safe Castle Royal, the original survival podcast sponsor. These guys have everything you need for your prepping, from the tactical to the practical, from guns to gardens and everything in between. You'll find it at Safe Castle Royal, the original survival podcast sponsor, the first company that stood up back in 2008 and said, Jack, we want to sponsor the show. We set up the sponsorship program and brought them in in 2009. It is now 2015, and they're still here. They're still standing by this community, this audience, and this show. That says something about loyalty. They also have a wonderful program called their Discount Buyers Club. They sell that every day for $49. It gives you discounts on everything they sell for the rest of your life. And if you're a member of my support brigade, they give it to you for free. Check them out today, safecastle.com. Next up today, bulkammo.com. I talk about this a lot. And there is what I call a triangle of gun operator efficiency. There's three real parts to this. 
the, the most critical is you, the operator. If, if, if you're not trained and you don't know what you're doing, you can have the best ammo and the best weapon, and it doesn't really help. But assuming you've gotten the training and the competency and you're willing to do what's necessary to defend your life and others, then you have the gun. And the gun actually is what makes you a gun operator versus, let's say, a weapons operator with something like a baseball bat. Well, guess what? If you have a gun and you don't have any ammo for it, then it's basically a really expensive version of a baseball bat. You'd be better off with a Louisville Slugger. It's probably a better club, and it's probably less likely to get you put in jail if it's seen, and it costs a lot less money. So what makes the weapon and the operator actually effective in the end is the terminal tackle, so to speak. It's the projectile. It's the ammunition. That means you need lots of ammo, because when the gun grabbers start talking about grabbing guns, first thing goes up in prices in the guns is the ammo. First thing goes off the shelves isn't the guns, it's the ammo and the magazines. And if you're going to train and be prepared, you need to run live ammo through those weapons. So you need ammo, you need in bulk, get it at bulkammo.com. The name is what it says, you know. Bulk ammo, you'll find it there in bulk. Shipping so fast, you'll wonder how they do it. And they do a discount for members of the Support Brigade as well, so check the benefits section of the MSB. On that note, if you're an MSB member, I've got something really cool to tell you about right now. I heard from uh, Clayton Jacobs, who is the maker of the Soil Cube. He's an ongoing MSB supporter, been for years. Uh, does the Soil Cube product, which is a great way to start your plants, especially if you're in annual production. And uh, he does a 20% discount for members of the MSB every day of the week. Right now, he's got a whole bunch of them. He's running a special for either a week or until he runs out, 50% off for members of the MSB. You go to the MSB, you look up the product, you follow the instructions and use the discount code there. Even though the MSB says 20, for the time being, you get 50 Check it out. There's a post on the on the blog today, too. It says, huge deal from for MSB on the Soil Cube. Please, if you go to look at that post, do not use the link of that post to buy. Go to the MSB to do that, or you're not going to get your discount. Anyway, on that note, what a great reason to join the MSB. What a great reason to join the MSB right there. That's If you buy a Soil Cube today, it's 12 bucks roughly, uh, right there, that you've saved immediately just by being a member. That's how I try to build the MSB. Something will save you a lot of money, give you a lot of great value. Check it out today. Go to the survivalpodcast.com. Click on members to learn more. That's all I'll say about it today. Uh, with that, let's get into the, uh, the history segment. It is the year 1552 because the episode is 1552. Alex has two on deck for us today. The Society of Jesus is made official. That's actually the official genesis of what's known as the Jesuits. If you want to know about that one, you'll have to read it to yourself at the TSP Wiki at tspwiki.com. I'm going to read Problems in Yemen, the Persian Gulf, and the Strait of Hormuz because it actually fits well with today's show. With the opposing trade with India, Portuguese merchants are bringing spices around the Cape of Good Hope. That's the tip of Africa for those that aren't familiar with the geography there. But part of merchant trading at this time is not only to provide goods and services to your customers but prevent your competition from doing the same, good and hard. The Ottoman Turks are the competition. They have, been take, they have taken Yemen along the Red Sea so as to control a shipping port of Maka and its coffee bean exports, but the Portuguese have taken the island of Hormuz at the top of the hairpin turn that is the Strait of Hormuz. That position effectively blocks all commerce with Persian Gulf, which includes modern-day eastern Saudi Arabia, Iran, Iraq, and the United Arab Emirates. 
The Ottoman Navy has been devastating in the Mediterranean Sea, but they can't bring enough ships around Africa to unseat the Portuguese from their perch. My take by Alex Shrug, there was no Suez Canal in 1552. But if it did exist, you can bet the Portuguese would have been blocking traffic through it for their competitors. The Suez Canal links the Red Sea with the Mediterranean Sea. It is extremely valuable for trade since one need not make a long trip around Africa. In that respect, it is like the Panama Canal. And like the Panama Canal, it is a military logistics choke point. At the time of the Russo-Japanese War, 1904-1905, the Russians wanted to send ships from the Baltic Sea to reinforce their navy, which had taken a beating against the Japanese. But the British blocked the Russian transit. The Suez Canal, the Suez Crisis in 1956 closed the Suez Canal, and President Dwight D. Eisenhower focused on the Suez rather than support Hungary, which was being invaded by the Soviets. His administration had been encouraging Hungary to break away. They thought the U.S. would come to save them, just as the Iraqi revolutionaries believed the U.S. would join them in their overthrow of Saddam Hussein after Gulf War I. Do I have to say Ukraine? I suppose I do. And this is a good thing to look at, because there's a lot of things that we think are modern problems that center around this area of the world that are very ancient problems. You have a confluence of three world religions with three different ideals about religion, faith, and the culture and society that go around them with Judaism, Christianity, and the, the Muslim faith. And a lot of conflict over that. You also have a choke point for the transportation of goods and services through an area where you can get really close with the ship, but there's that last little piece of land. Again, before the Suez Canal, and now even with the Suez Canal, you still have all of that confluence of, of problems there. And it's important to understand that that goes way back before the days of oil. right? You, you don't hear a lot about you know pumping oil from the ground at this time because they didn't do it. They got their oil from whales. Not only from whales, but that's where they got most of their you know Most oil came from either whales or olives at this time. And they weren't using it to power power plants or vehicles or anything like that. They were using it for things like a, a lamp or to lubricate machinery and, th and things like that. So it is a different time with a different resource issue, but it was still a choke point. And it's always been a choke point. It's always been an issue with the Russians as well, with the Black Sea and trying to have a seaport and everything else. It's always been a mess. It's still a mess. And you would think with airplanes, well, it wouldn't be that big of a mess. But airplanes can't haul what a ship can. They just can't do it, especially when you start looking at something massive like oil. So it's always been a problem, and until we think differently, it probably will always be a problem. Taking it to how it pertains to what I'm going to talk to you about today, though, I want you to think about this. The Portuguese and the Ottoman Turks were in competition for the importation and exportation of goods. They made their money by bringing the goods from one place to the other. And the most efficient route probably would have been shipping a small overland route and then shipping again. This is what the Turks would have done if not for the interference by the Portuguese. Rather than understand that the best thing for society was this, this cooperative spirit, they chose to fight with each other over who would have the greater control, and therefore neither method was the most efficient it could be. I'm sure that the Portuguese going around Africa wasn't as efficient as it could be, even if that's the way it was going to get done. So 
because of a conflict over resources, there were resource scarcities, and the only people that really profited from the resource scarcities were the people that created it. By creating these scarcities, whether through competition or through outright oppression of the other side, which at whatever was sold could be sold at a higher price. Sounds a lot like today. And that's kind of what you have to be thinking about as we look at today's subject, which again is the real long, slow emergency, which I'm going to describe to you as complex as it is. I've distilled it into a few paragraphs. Before I do that, though, I want to tell you something that I read a long time ago um, that was a transcript of a lecture given by Bill Mollison, founder of Permaculture. And I won't, this is a, a pseudo quote, right? This is a not exact quote, uh, a paraphrase, if you will. But basically what he said is, you know, he, he was in America and he sees these huge trucks on the highway. And one truck is headed from California to New York, let's say. The other trucks head from New York to California as they pass each other on the highway. And his comment was to the effect of, I wonder how many of these trucks are actually carrying the exact same cargo in completely opposite directions. And trucks from New York State are taking product to California that is the exact same product that a company in California is shipping to New York. How inefficient is this? How wasteful of resources is this? And it is because those two companies, being in a comp competition model, exist to serve their customers. And if they happen to have their port, port, port that they receive their product in New York or they manufacture their product in New York and their customer happens to be in California, well, then that's where they send it. But wouldn't it be far more efficient of the things that were in California stayed there and the things that were in New York stayed there until such time as there was a surplus and a, and a shortage somewhere else for them to go? It's just an interesting way to start thinking about this problem. Now, let me explain the long, slow emergency in as simplified of terms as I can. And it's far more complicated. It's far larger. It's far worse. But this is an attempt to just get your arms around it. I whipped this out in about five minutes this morning, and I'm going to read it to you verbatim. The governments of the world have created a monetary system where debt is money, and all money is debt. This system, flawed though it is, actually works quite well as long as the social contract that gives our money value remains stable. Put pressure on it though, and unlike any true fiat currency, a debt-backed currency begins an implosion cycle. As debt is defaulted on, money disappears. Bailing out losers only fills holes. It doesn't replace what is lost. And you can only fill so many holes before the system breaks. Additionally, for every loser bailed out, 20 other people still lose. If society begins to feel the loss, because it is always handed down to the so-called middle class, the stability of the social contract begins to falter. Adding to this issue is the fact that our current system is built on perpetual growth. To pay today's bills, the economy and productive population must be larger than yesterday's. And this must go on forever. When growth stops the entire system begins to fail. Next, we are entering a time when automation and technology are eliminating jobs faster than any time in history. We now live in a world where less than 50% of society are truly employed. And likely only 20% are actually gainfully employed, meaning what they do is necessary for society. 
This is because many jobs are not really necessary or provide nothing people really need or even want. Combine this with a population with more people alive today than were ever even born and died in the majority of human history. This population is taking resources from the planet far faster than they can be replaced. In the end, we're headed for a slow collapse of the economy, our resource base, and the social glue of society itself. Technology can help with this problem, but it alone can't solve it. In fact, if sufficient technology is created that can sweep the problem under the rug for, say, a few more decades, the resulting collapse will be far more catastrophic and swift in decline than what we can currently expect. The problem will be have to be solved with a massive paradigm shift of economy, labor, resource use, and land management. The bad news is at the government and corporate level, there is no plan for this because the plan doesn't work well for those currently in power. So that's the problem. Now, before I continue with, and I'm going to talk about the problem for quite a bit here, uh, before I continue with it, whenever I talk about this, the gloom and doom people get really upset with me, which you would think they wouldn't, because I'm talking about an awful lot of gloom and doom here. But it's not the gloom and doom that they've come to expect. It doesn't fit their, their, their version of their, their, their observation and perception bias. It doesn't match their narrative that they've been conditioned to believe, which is everything will look super one day, and then the next day they'll be riding the streets and burning, and the whole government will be gone, and everybody will be killing each other, and it'll be like a prepper fiction novel. Okay, The reason that it doesn't match that is that's not the narrative that's ever played out in human history. There's been microcosms and pockets and pieces of that, But societies don't generally collapse. Whenever you hear people that want to make a case for a, 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 a massive, one-time, bam, collapse, whenever you hear that, they talk about things like the collapse of the Roman Empire. And they leave out like hundreds of years of history, the hundreds of years of decline that came, and the multiple rebuildings and rebirths and then falls again, and then the evolution into other societies. They just leave all that out, and they go, Rome was great, and then it fell. Like, it all happened in a day. That is not how the Roman Empire fell. It's not how the Greek Empire fell. It's not how the Inca Empire fell. It's not how any empire that's ever existed ever fell apart. Many of them morphed into pieces and parts of other empires. Many of them were assimilated and taken over by other empires. And make no mistake about it, what we have today is a, a system of multiple empires. Some competing and some far more insidious because... They're fascist in their arrangement. In other words, in this country, we have an empire of a, of, of a ruling elite class of politicians and bureaucrats. But we also have an empire of a corporate component. And when those two cohabitate with each other and work together and cooperate with each other and have multiple incestuous relationships with revolving doors in and out of government and in and out of industry, then you get that fascist equivalent and you have a dual empire in one place. And then these empires are then cut up into sub-empires. 
So just like, you know, when, when this country was, was being settled in the beginning as colonies, you would have, you know, a colony that we now call a state. But within that state, you would have governors and mayors and things like that who would each be given pieces of it to rule. Well, in the corporate world that we have here, we have basically a complex built around the military. So we have the military itself, but then we have the military complex, the industrial side, which is far larger and far more of a, a tax on, on, on the people from a resource standpoint. It also provides a lot of so-called jobs, and some of them are legitimate and some of them not so much. But there's a tremendous amount of wealth transfer from the people to the elite through that complex. And that complex is used to sell the population on the, the, the misguided belief in an American exceptionalism that's not real. And it's used to create a patriotic fervor. And it's used to threaten anybody that would stand against us because we're damn good at what we do there. Okay? But that's just one little empire. It's probably the biggest one, but it's one empire. We also have an empire built around pharmaceuticals and drugs. We also have an entire empire built around the healthcare side of that, the drugs and then the, the, the bureaucracy that is healthcare, both insurance and actual care, is another one. We have a financial empire. And all of these empires coexist. And all of our, if you want to call them competing nations in the world, have their own versions of these empires coexisting there. This is the way of things everywhere. And the, the complex of empires that, that have been built, the group of systems that have been built, create a certain level of redundancy for those in power. So they've been able to hold on for a lot longer than you would expect. And they've been able to keep things working and functioning and the trains on time and the money worth something for a lot longer than you would expect because of this incestuous interplayed network that they've put together. But in our society today, the, the glue that makes all those pieces of the web actually stick together is the fact that the majority of the people in modern nations, including ours, do have a roof over their head. They have reasonable comfort. A poor person in the United States today lives better than a wealthy person did 500 years ago. In reality, they really do. They live longer. They're less likely to die of illness. They have more to eat, and you can go on and on about whether you like the way that happens or not. That's the truth. So that exists. The average person can expect that whatever they've built for themselves will be relatively stable. If you've achieved more, you might have some more of it taken from you than other people do, but you'll have enough left that you'll be able to live a little bit better than everybody else. No matter how insidious taxation is, if you build a business in this country, the government doesn't just take it away from you. Okay, There's not a seizure. And if you have money and you want something and it's for sale, you can buy it. These things keep society glued together. Now, all of the things that we buy, all of the stuff, whether it's energy, whether it's food, whether it's water, whether it's an ornament that we put on our wall, whether it's a computer that does work for us, in the end, all of it comes from the earth. Either from a living system, like food all comes from living systems, or through some sort of resource mining. So in your computer, you have plastics that come from oil, you have metals that come from ores, etc., agnosium. So in the end, for society to have all the stuff, 
that makes the, 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 the system of control operate, there have to be sufficient resources from which to draw to provide it to society to make society continue to believe that what we call money actually has value. When the money is not what has value, the society itself has value. When, when, when I come to you and you sell me, let's say, a five-pound block of mushroom spawn, and I give you $25 for that five-pound block, and you take that money and you put it in your pocket, if all you were going to do is put that money in your pocket and you were never going to do anything else with it, you'd be better off with the mushroom spawn. What does the $25, what does the, the 20 and the 5, let's say I do it in cash, Right, you got you got an Andy and you got I got an Abe, and I I put them together and I hand them to you. There's no change. I get my mushroom spawn. Now I can take that and I can put it in wet wood chips, and six months later I get a whole bunch of mushrooms. Okay, I can eat those. They provide a nutritional equivalent for me. They provide a health benefit. They might help other plants grow really well. They provide a mycelium net. I mean, they are a legitimate value. Those That spawn has value, and if I use it effectively, it has value that exceeds the monetary number that you put on it for me. That's why I bought it. People don't generally buy things unless they feel, for my own personal needs, I get a gain by buying this. Right? The seller feels, since I only used $10 to produce it, I made 15 bucks. Therefore, I have as much of this stuff as I want. I'm selling my surplus for a profit. But again, if you put the $25 in your pocket, what good does it do you? You can't eat it. It's pretty poor quality stuff for starting a fire with. It doesn't do anything unless you can turn around and say, you know what, even though I'm a great mushroom guy, I don't have steak. So I'm going to go down to the butcher and I'm going to buy myself a couple ribeyes, maybe some beef short ribs and... Uh, I don't know, maybe some, some uh, low-cost cuts of some other stuff. I can get quite a bit of meat with this $25 and, you know, 15 of its profit. So now I'm going to have mushrooms and steak, right? So the money has no value at all. It has no value. It is completely and totally, as a thing, worthless. Money is solely a system of accounting for the things in society that do have either real value or perceived value. So what's the difference between real and perceived value? If I buy a steak, okay, that steak has a real value. I can eat it, it has a caloric input. We could even scientifically measure that value and say, this steak has 880 calories in it. X from fat, Y from protein. This is what it will do for your body. This is how many people can be fed for how long with it, if augmented with other things. We know the value. Okay. Now, if I take an ounce of silver, there's a certain intrinsic value to just being an ounce of silver. There's a certain energy required. The, the metal has industrial uses. It also has a value that is relatively stable throughout human history as to what an ounce of silver can be bartered with for. Okay? So it has both a perceived value, because in the end you still can't eat it, but there's a certain intrinsic worth to something that requires a certain amount of energy to extract and purify and be a known quantity. So when you get an ounce of silver and it's marked an ounce from a reputable mint, you know what you have and therefore that it has an intrinsic and some small piece of perceived worth. Now, if that coin 
is a U.S. silver dollar circa 1880, mint state 70, okay? Um, oh, mint mark from New Orleans, mint. It might be worth hundreds of dollars. It, it might not. I don't know what the value of that particular coin I just pulled out of my ass is. But it's going to be worth more than just an ounce of silver. It, it's, it, it probably isn't a mint, mint state 70. You know, it probably doesn't, doesn't exist that old. The, the minting of the time wasn't good enough to produce a 70. So it'd probably be worth a fortune. It'd be the only one in the world. But 100% of the spread between the one ounce of silver or the, the silver dollar that has nine-tenths of an ounce roughly in it and the one that you're going to pay a premium for is 100% subjective. There's no real value there. It's, it's a perceptive value. To a numismaticist, a, 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 a coin collector who dabbles in the hobby, if they got an opportunity, they say you couldn't sell it. All you can do is buy it and hold it, right? And if anybody was going to sell it, it would be your great-grandkid, you'd never know. They, you'd be dead by then. So even though it might be on paper where, let's say, a $1,000 coin, Somebody that's like just a, a kind of, you know, I like coins and I have a few cool things and stuff like that and, you know, what have you. They, they might pay $100, $200 bucks for it, but they probably wouldn't pay the full value unless they intended to sell it. But somebody that's like their thing, man, they want to own every pristine, you know, silver dollar from the 1880s, they might pay the full premium. But the value's subjective in the end. The one that, that's kind of rubbed up and sells for, for scrap, uh, you know, is junk silver, and the one that's pristine really have the same amount of silver. They really have the same intrinsic worth. It's only a perceived value. So you have to understand that everything in society has either a perceived or an intrinsic value. And we've moved into a point where society is spending a lot more of its money on perceived value versus real value. Where... It isn't that long ago that the whole thing was reversed. Only the uber-wealthy bought something due to perceived value. Perceived value works like this. There's two pair of jeans. They're made out of the same material. They have the same construction methods. One has a brand on it, and the other one's a store brand, and you pay more for the one with the brand on it. It's a perceived value. It's a perceived value. It's not any better. Now, sometimes a brand conveys a quality. And then you're buying the underlying quality. But you can't tell me that people don't pay money, pay more money for something just because of a brand, even when it's the same product. 200 years ago, what you would call middle class just didn't do this. They just didn't do this. Not anywhere near the level that's done today. Easy credit, easy money, cheap energy is what's made this happen. And that can only go on so long. So in the end... Every single bit of this perceived value can evaporate the first time needs exceed desires. That's, that's the break point. When your needs are no longer sufficiently met, you will focus on your needs to the exclusion of your desires. Putting it another way. Let's say that um, I had a really nice picture. A really nice picture. Something I hand drew. I'm only ever going to draw one of them. And you like my artwork. And I say, this picture's 50 bucks. And you look at the picture and go, wow, that's, I think that's worth way more than $50. And you say, here's 50 bucks, Jack. I'll take that picture and I give you the picture. And it's an easy sale. And it's not a need. 
There's no world in which, unless there's a picture of a map that leads someplace you have to go, there's no world in which you need that picture. But you wanted it. And you'll only give me $50 for it, no matter how much you like it, if your basic needs are met. If I stress your needs, okay, you don't have enough money to pay your electric bill this month. You have some money. You have 50 bucks, okay? But right now, you're trying to negotiate with the electric company to keep the power on for whatever reason. And I show you the picture, and you think it's totally worth $50. Are you going to buy it? No, you'll hold on to what you have. Because if you lose your power, maybe that $50 can some other way meet your deed. Or maybe if you save it and save some money next month, even if you have to go without power for a month, you get the power back on. So th this is what this is what starts to bring a society toward this slow collapse. Every time needs are stressed, the the amount that people are willing to spend on desires declines. And we have... A society that is built primarily on an economy of desire rather than need. People buy a house and pay two, three, four hundred thousand dollars more for it because it's in a trendy area where hipsters walk up and down the street and buy freaking overpriced coffees and, and, and slurpees. Or what do you call them? Slushies or whatever the hell you call that crap those people drink. I drink them too. Smoothies, right? You know, juice bars and smoothies and stuff, right? You know, so there's like there's this really cool place down here, man. It's awesome, and they have this great wheatgrass smoothie, and I go down there and get that. And you know, so my house is worth what they asked for. It's not. It's not. If it, 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 there's a, there's a, there's a certain value to a home based on location that we can we can accept as a reality when you go to extremes. Two homes, one's in the inner city where people get shot every day, and the other one's in a nice, safe, secure neighborhood. Yeah, sure. Sure, we could say there's a, a greater value to the home, but the reality is it's not even the case. It's not even the case. The house in the shitty area is actually worth from a, if we actually analyze, if they're built from the same material, the same size, etc., by the same type of contractor, agnosium, they're actually worth the same amount of money. It's not that the house that's somewhere better is worth more, it's the house in the place that's in danger has been devalued. And as long as you're dealing with that, you're dealing with reality. But as soon as the house begins to exceed its underlying value by a significant amount because of some subjective thing like, oh, I don't know, it, 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 it's in a desirable location where all of your friends will be impressed. We start to, to move into that world. So even with real estate, which should be the most real asset most people ever own or control okay, through debt, you still have this massive subjective value. If you look around your home, most of the things in your home, if you're a modern American, even a prepper, you'll still say there's a ton of subjective value here. If you own a few guns, owning any more, it's about, so I want more, so I'm going to have them. And I'm not saying you shouldn't. I'm just saying, do you get to a subjective value thing? You know, I mean, there was a certain brilliance to the, the society that my, my father grew up in when it came to firearms. You had a rifle. For hunting deer, you had a 22 for shooting small game and practicing. You had a shotgun. And a lot of people, that was it. You might also have a handgun, right? For, for self-defense and for taking places the other guns can't go. 
But pretty much that was it. Most people really had a three-gun battery. A rifle, a shotgun, and a .22. And it wasn't about, like, well, you don't need an assault rifle or whatever bullshit the gun grabbers say. It was about practicality. You know, if you ask my grandfather if he wanted an AR-15, he would have said, what the hell do you want that for? Not because he didn't think you should have it, but because to him, why the hell would I give you $1,200 of my hard-earned money when this old 3030 that's been sitting here for 80 years that my dad gave me still kills the deer just as dead as it did 100 years ago. So I don't need it. So I'm not going to spend my money on it. So even a lot of things that we look at and say, well, it's a need, it's, is it really? If it, it, Here's how you know. If you're, you were financially stressed and would not spend your money on it, then it's not a need. Needs you will purchase until you're out of the ability to purchase them, period. Now, with a, from a business standpoint, a lot of desires are the last things people cut when they are in a what you would call either a short pinch or a mild pinch. In other words, I, it's a pinch, but I know it's going away. So I'll just turn all the lights off in the house and cut the electric bill this month, even though power is more of a need. But I'm cutting the objective part of it, the subjective part of it. Um, and they'll keep you know, their, their expensive gym membership they use once a week because nah, I don't want to have to start it all over again. Okay? But when you actually go into a long pinch or a severe one, where you're at the second you are worried that by the end of this week you won't eat, the superfluous is cut. Why is that so important? Why did I spend 10 minutes explaining this? Because that is where we're headed with resources and the socioeconomic contract that holds everything together. As we look around and we start to realize, okay, fine, yeah, um, maybe they'll still have more oil. Maybe this peak oil stuff is a little bit of nonsense. Or maybe it's just, you know what, it's a big problem. Here's what I think. I think it's a tremendous problem. I just think the people that have been like, it's going to happen, it's going to happen, it's going to happen. And I've been going, not yet, not yet, not yet. You're stupid. You don't know. Everything is oil. No, your tires are oil. I understand that. I'm just saying there's more than you think there is. And it's not that it's not a problem. It's not that we're not wasting it. It's not that we're not using it excessively. It's not that we're not pumping out of the ground in ways that are causing lots of pollution. It's that there's more of it than you think there is. And the oil machine can run a lot longer in the bell curve than you think it can. And we're headed for catastrophe with this. But it's a lot further in the future than you think. There's a lot of other things that are in our face now. We talked about California this week and the drought, 38 million people living in a state that's mostly desert. What some people have said, the population doesn't use anywhere near as much as agriculture. All 38 million of those people eat. All 38 million of those people eat. Those 38 million people have transformed some of the best land into concrete that sheds the water and gets rid of it. So it's not just what they use, it's what they eliminate from being part of the system. And it is also, California feeds the whole country. California spends a lot of time and effort feeding California. Think about feeding 38 million people. Think about it. It's not simple. So California is its own resource drain. In, in a hundred different ways. I can't even go in today because I can spend the whole day on just that. 
But it's easy to now see water shortages in California. As half the country gets deluged today with rains that are creating flash floods. But even in those parts of the country, a lot of that water that will be in such excess today will be scarce by summer instead of being held like energy in a battery. In many ways, the way we manage water today is like using disposable batteries, right? So if you have a disposable battery that's half empty and you come across the ability to recharge it, it doesn't do you any good. You can't recharge it, right? And, and, and that's that's how we manage water, right? It's just, we, we it, 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 the, it's full, we're done. I don't have any room, room for all this extra stuff. We don't have any place to put it. We don't have any rechargeable batteries that are ready to receive some more. Think about how you manage your iPhone. I bet most of you, when you get in your car, have a cord in there somewhere and you plug your iPhone in. If it's 80%, by the time you get where you're going, it's 100. And if you don't, you should. And most of our rechargeable devices, if we're not actively using them, and the opportunity comes up, we put them into a position to, to, to fill up. And we manage that. And we try to keep it as full as possible as often as possible. So what we should be doing with water. But we're not doing it. So the water problem is not just drought. It's not just use. It's waste. It's waste. In the agriculture, it's, it's also the waste in how it's used. If you're pumping water through open canals across miles, how much are you losing to evaporation? There's better ways to do this. Now, the actual scary part is the water problem is probably one of the easiest problems to solve <clears throat> if society collectively decided we were going to solve it and we were going to stop blaming people for what's wrong and, and creating factions and just say, okay, how do we fix this? How do we efficiently harvest water? How do we efficiently store water? Because we know all the answers to this. And how do we stop fighting over this resource and manage this resource as what it really is? I believe water is a human right. I, I really do. I think that as a human being on this planet, you have a right to water. Now, that doesn't mean you have a right to water at someone else's expense or someone else is required to provide you with that right. It is up to you to exercise the right. It is up to you to take part in it. It is up to you to to provide enough effort in order to receive water. It is also of your responsibility to be responsible with what you're given. So just like you have a right to self-defense, that doesn't give you the right to go out and shoot somebody in the face who didn't do anything. I believe you have a right to own a weapon, own a gun, but I don't believe that that means that it's okay for you to load it and stick it on a tree out in your front yard and leave it out for children to pick up. All rights have you know, corresponding responsibilities. So if we actually managed water like what it is, a human right, something that is a public resource. And that would work in anything from an anarchist group to a, a socialist government. It could be done that way. And no matter what choice you're going to make about what form of community you're going to have, water is one of those things we should manage that way. But it's not about saying, okay, well, there's more people in Colorado or California than Colorado. Colorado has more water than California does, so we should take Colorado's water and give it to California. That's socialist redistribution. That's not managing the resource to the good of humanity. That's poor management of a resource. Very inefficient management of a resource. So we need to, but we could fix that problem. There's a lot of other problems that aren't so easy to solve. 
Our nation is one of the leading food producers in the world, and we are destroying the arability of our soil. And there's not really any place left to expand mainstream agriculture into. It's, it's there. The only thing they can do to increase yields at this point is greater efficiency through technologies like genetic modification and spraying and all, and that's wearing out. So you start to pinch food. Well, if you pinch food just a little bit in supply side, you start to pinch it a lot more in cost side. And we have to understand that our food right now is dramatically more expensive than we believe it to be. It is more expensive because, number one, the primary food crops in this country are subsidized, which means somebody's paying the bill. There's no free lunch. The other thing is the way it's being produced and the way it's being used and the way that we take something like corn and, and convert it from, from a, a, an okay food to a horrible food as pure sugar and put it into things that don't need sugar is causing an epidemic of disease, and that's costing us a fortune on the other side of it. But you put a pinch on the supply. Those realities start to surface, and the cost of food goes up. Now, what happens when any perceived shortage begins to occur in society? Hoarding. So people begin to take more than they need. They take more than they even want out of fear that it won't be there tomorrow. What happens next? That exasperates the problem, and more people start to partake in the glutton-like behavior. And the people that have the means to acquire out-acquire those of the people that don't. The person that literally pays for their daily bread daily can't buy two weeks' worth at a time. The person that doesn't really need the bread can buy a month's worth at a time, and that's, on one day, 30 people that can't buy the daily because it's gone now. And, and there are so many resources on this planet that we're headed for just from the supply side. Then we have the economy itself falling into itself for a variety of reasons. One is there's never been a time in history where more people's jobs were on the track to being eliminated. Not being outsourced, not being downsized, eliminated. I just don't need you. And no one else does either. I don't need you anymore. And we have become a society that so devalues actual human labor and actual productivity. Like the most basic thing we could be doing as beings is producing food and managing food resources and producing and managing natural needed resources. So energy, etc. We now pay the person who does the accounting for the oil company more than the person that goes out and risks his life on the oil rig to pump the oil out of the ground. And the accounting is also that the oil company can avoid paying the taxes that it's supposedly overtaxed with for a system that we've created that we do not need based on taxing income and punishing productivity. Yay us, right? And the whole world's done it too. Different flavors, different versions, but it's all the same. But we're going to get to a point where even the accountant's job is taken away. Computers will do everything. Oh, you still need people to keep records? No, the computers will do it all. The computers will do it all. The guy won't be climbing up on the rig anymore either. The roughnecker will be out of a job soon. I, I know you don't think that, but it's I'm sorry. Over 10 to 20 years, the entire educational system is being torn asunder by itself. It's a it's an outdated artifact of, of a primitive time that doesn't exist anymore, preparing students for a job or a society that no longer exists. 
fast food workers. From the fast food worker to the skilled tradesman, these jobs are being eliminated left and right. A person is going to be able to design something that you would call an artisan object one time. And computers can make a hundred thousand of them. And if they're functional, it's not just something to look at. A functional element with greater repeatability and greater dependability than the artisan ever could. So the artisan will only have value in their art if the purchaser values the other person, the human component to the craft. And we have tried as hard as we can as a society to devalue the human part of any craft and all craft. This is what happens when you start telling kids, well, you don't want to work hard for a living for, you know, with your body. You don't want to be out using a shovel. Really? I mean, if you think about the fact that a kid used to be able to start a job with a shovel, end up running a backhoe, and eventually end up running a company that built things that we actually used, why do we ever tell them they don't want to do that? But we've devalued that. The more you put into something, the lower of a, of a being you are. Where we used to value the people that worked the hardest, we valued them. And believe it or not, to solve this problem, we have to go back to that so that we can begin to exchange value without the state fake apparatus of the monetary system. We can still use their, dot, their Federal Reserve notes, if you want to, as a method of accounting, It's not about the unit of exchange. It's about returning to a point where we actually understand the value of the exchange. What am I getting from you? And what am I giving you? Not from a greed standpoint. What do I get? No, but if you want me to trade with you, to work with you, to employ you, to be employed by you, There has to be a trading of intrinsic real value. And that means we're going to have to return to a point where we begin to actually see where all wealth comes from. And it is natural systems. It is the earth. Everything else is either backed by a natural system or it's fake. And as we get to a point where society begins to see the failure of the natural systems... It will expose the fake for what it is. And you were heading to a society where there's going to be shortages of resources, breaking of the social contract that holds society together, and we also have an economic system that requires growth and a projection that will be a decline. Those two don't go together. It's oil and water. They have to separate, and they go in two totally different directions. We won't be able to pay old people Social Security soon because there's not enough working people to pay for it anymore. And it's not just because lazy people are on welfare. It's because, number one, without immigration, this country has no population growth anymore. And that's why the oligarchs are doing all they can to encourage illegal immigration. Illegal, legal, they don't give a shit. As long as more people come here because they know their system requires it. People say, how can illegals fix the economy? Why don't they fix their own economy? It's not about them fixing it as individuals. It's about their collective numbers, okay, getting them into menial work 
a little bit better than they have now, so that they're in a system where they pay FICA and FUTA, and even if they get a federal tax rebate on the income tax, they're paying the Ponzi scheme of Social Security and Medicare and Medicaid. Got it? That's why they're doing it. I'm not saying they should or shouldn't. I'm saying that's that's their mentality. They know they need that. The problem is you're now trying to drag people into that under the old world model of factory labor and factory farms and all this factory stuff where the factories are saying more and more, yeah, we don't need people. I don't care if they're cheap. My robot doesn't need a health care plan. So you're getting more and more people that even when there's a, a rise in population don't actually do anything productive and yet have to be paid some sort of monetary unit for them to function. See, if the government just gave them housing and food and everything, but it didn't have any kind of monetary exchange, why do you think they do things like payment cards and stuff like that? They have to create the illusion of money moving through the economy even when they're just creating it themselves or recirculating it. Money only expands if it moves through the economy. We call this monetary velocity. So you're getting to a point where there's just not enough people doing shit to keep that illusion up. And we have a lot of people that have become part of this system, some that are what you would call employed, that are functionally useless to society. They're not useless beings, but they're functionally useless. If they died, other than people that would miss them as friends and family, no one would really care. The company they work for would go on. There's a lot of people out there, if they died tomorrow, that have jobs, right? The company that they work for would probably, you know... It can be good caring people that run the company. Don't don't take this the wrong way. But when all was said and done, and the funeral had been had, and whatever insurance the customer the, the company had on the thing had been transferred to to the family, and they, you know the the owner went over and hugged the mom or dad or whatever, and and went on, the company wouldn't even hire a replacement. There's a lot of people employed right now that. They're, the need for them was perceived, but wasn't there, but the company functions well enough. I don't want to fire anybody if I don't have to. Um, or they seem like they're useful, they seem like they're valuable, and they actually do a good job at what they do. They show up on time, etc. But if you actually took them away, nothing would actually stop working. No customer wouldn't get their product. There's a lot of people like that. It's not their fault. They've worked themselves into whatever level of, you know, and most of them would like to do more. But they don't have anything else to do. As more of those people face the fundamental reality of that and end up, you know, we can't keep you around anymore because a robot does this now, or we figured out that we don't need you, whatever it is, and end up unemployed, they've actually not ever done anything in their lives that's of intrinsic worth to another human being. Now, I don't mean that they're not good people. I don't mean that they haven't hugged their child and made them feel better. I don't mean that they haven't, you know, gone and visited a sick person or something like that. But what I mean is, from a productivity standpoint, they've never built anything. They've never grown anything. They've never designed anything that actually helped somebody else in any way. And again, not, this is not a moral, moralistic view. This is a capability. They don't have any skills. They have no hard skills that are of value to society. And now they're unemployed in a resource shortage 
what do you think they're going to do? They're going to demand that somebody fix their problem. And they're going to be no contribution to the repair unless they have what they call in the South a come-to-Jesus moment. Right? Come-to-Jesus moment ain't always about religion down here. Okay? Come-to-Jesus means a, 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 the same type of experience. Like, if, if I say, you and I, you work for me, and we're going to have a come-to-Jesus meeting, there ain't going to be no religion in it at all. It's basically you figuring out your ass is on the line for your job if you don't get things working better. So you can have that moment, which is about anything. And unless that person has that moment and then realizes, okay, I'm a functionally useless person in a world full of problems and I need to now figure out what can I learn as fast as possible to begin helping solve problems, they become a further drain on society. And we can only print welfare checks or pay people to exist or whatever we decide to do about this, call it a resource-based economy, doesn't matter. We can only do this for so long until people start to realize it's all fake. And again, what holds it all together is a social contract. When the social contract fails, it doesn't matter what the currency is, it doesn't matter what the government is. When the social contract fails, people begin to disperse, work out for themselves what they're going to take care of, And they begin to form factions and they begin to fight. And then you have the societal collapse that everybody's always talking about and expecting. The, the, but it doesn't look like Road Warrior. It can look like anything from the breakup of the Soviet Union to the Civil War of the Balkans. And anything in between. And you never know what you're going to get. It's the real box of chocolates. But inside that box of chocolates, sometimes there's a chocolate that has a freaking razor blade or a nail stuck in it. Sometimes there's some that's poison, and sometimes there's some that's pretty good. And you'll never know, and you ain't allowed to smash them with your fingers and see. you got to stick it in your mouth and bite it and see what happens. That's our future. Unless we begin to cognitively take control of this reality now. The first thing that we all need to do as individuals is begin to form a plan to see to our basic needs, either by ourselves or through voluntary collective interactions. And what I mean by that is we need to realize that we need to feed ourselves first and foremost from our backyard, secondly, from people down the road, third, from people across town, fourth, from people on the other side of the city, fifth, from some other part of our state, sixth, from some other part of our country, Seventh from somewhere else in the world. And we need to see most of the stuff that we eat that comes from anywhere else in the world other than right here in America as what it is. It's a luxury. Suez Canal. Got it? Right back to the history segment. It's all luxury. We need our daily bread, if you want to call it that, from as close to home as possible. We need to be able to have secure, healthy shelters to live in that use energy efficiently, we need to build these things for ourselves. And we need to make do with what we have. I have a standard house, a shitty house from that standpoint. It was built in 1979. Do you know what you did in 1979 when you built a house? You cut every corner because interest rates were 18%. Okay? So I have that reality to face, but I'm still doing whatever I can to make things work better for myself. And I try to think, where's my next level? Where's my next layer? Let's start with food. So that's what I'm doing first. Trees take longer to grow than it takes to build a house that's, that's, you know, thermally responsive or what have you. So 
We need to be doing all these things. And we need to start out as individuals, but we need to quickly evolve into what I consider a natural formation of anarchi anarchistic groups. right? And I think that anarchism at the national level, if there was ever such a thing, is not something we even need to think about right now. Right, So a lot of people that are fans of libertarian or anarchist philosophy want to convert the country. Forget about it. It's not happening. We have to build our own beachheads, our own islands of this. And that means starting to realize that there are some things that we don't consider needs that are needs. Because the absence of them results in what you can only call warfare. Whether it's war between two people, war between two companies, war between two states, war between two nations, war between two tribes. Doesn't matter. It's war. Okay? And wars are cold wars and hot wars and a lot of stuff in the middle. So one thing we need to avoid wars are arbitration and diplomacy. So we need, and I've talked about doing it with virtual nations, but there's no reason that many groups can't form their own systems of arbitration. This is why when everybody's freaking out, it's your real law in Texas. No, they don't. They have Muslim Islam, Church of Islam provided mediation that people collectively agree to And they don't have to do it. Okay, I'm not going to get upset about them doing what I'm thinking we should. And what that means is, is we build societies. We build groups within our own communities. We need to start saying, you know what, if there's a discrepancy between neighbors, let's get all the neighbors together and talk about it. Let's, let's come up with as many solutions as we can. Let's throw every solution we can out on the floor. And say, I want this and I want that. Let's just throw... Well, you could do this, you could do this, you could do this, and let's write them all. I mean, how much better would this be? Joe and Tom have a disagreement about something in their neighborhood. Instead of an HOA meeting, which is just a pseudo-government, everybody that gives a shit enough about Joe, Tom, or the problem come into a room. A natural mediator to this that doesn't have a serious dog in the hunt, but simply wants everybody to be all right, steps up to the front of the room, pulls down a great big whiteboard, and says, let's figure this shit out. What, let's define the problem. Tom wants this, Joe wants, that's where we're at right now. Okay, anybody with an idea as to how these guys can both get at least much of what they want and cohabitate, throw that idea out and make a list of 20 ideas. And let's say to Joe and Tom, is there any of these solutions that either one of you would be okay with? Well, I'd be okay with A, B, and R. And, and Tom says, well, I would be okay with D, Z, and Y. Shit. There's no match yet. Okay, let's find the similarities. Okay, what if we did this? And then we come up with some more solutions. And then we're down to like five solutions. A, B, C, D, and E, right? And, and, and Joe says, well, I'd be okay with A and C. And Tom says, A is out. But I would do C. Okay, let's do C. It's totally different than a court of law. It's not even a court of public opinion. It's a collective joining of minds to solve an issue, to solve a problem. How do we fix this? I mean, and this requires a certain amount of emotional maturity. And it's why we need to begin taking over entire blocks of neighborhoods. We need to emulate what the urban farming guys are doing in St. Louis. In low-income neighborhoods, middle-income neighborhoods, high-income neighborhoods. We need to take over places. We need to do our own developments. We really do. And not just permaculture developments, just more of a socioeconomic development that's based on a recognition that everybody has rights, your property is your own, 
Your material is your own, but if you're a collective component to a society, you should be engaged with other people where it makes sense. There should be voluntary associations. Come join us or don't. That's a voluntary association, by the way. Voluntary association isn't, well, I'm showing up, but I'm not participating in your shit. No, voluntary association is if you're coming here, this is how we run things. Now, if you don't like that, you're free to go somewhere else. What kept this nation free for so much longer than our government ever, our structure of government ever could have was just that. For so many years in this country, even as the oligarchy reestablished itself. I mean, come on, Jefferson and Adams, these guys were oligarchs of their time. Right? I mean, really. But you could go west, you could go north, you could go south. There were so many places you could go where man moved faster than the state that so much freedom was kept for so long. But eventually we ran out of the ability to leave. Voluntary association requires that I can leave. Well, much of the stuff that's wrong in our country today, there's no place I can go where there isn't any of it anymore. Or there's even a lot less of it. As good as Texas is as a place to live, there's still plenty of problems here. So we need to start solving our own problems. We need to have people begin to understand that the state will never fix your problem to the satisfaction of both parties, so it should be the last resort, not the first response. However, right now, it's always the first response. If I have a problem with my neighbor, instead of talking to him, I call county code enforcement. Let me tell you how this works. I have a good friend I lost a number of years ago. I did a whole show on him and his life, and I learned a lot from him, but he did some dumb shit in his life. His name was Hal Dodd, and I first met him as a fishing guide. Well, he had a problem. I don't even remember what it was, but with something one of his neighbors had done with their yard and the way that it looked, and he knew it wasn't up to code. So he called the city of Arlington's code enforcement and said, hey, I've got a neighbor with blah, 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 I've, I, I, and basically lied. I've talked to him about it. He won't do anything about it. So the inspector comes down, looks at it, and goes, yeah, that's wrong. It's absolutely wrong. And he writes up the neighbor and requires, with the threat of violence at the point of the state's gun, because that's how all this shit works, that the neighbor fix it. Well, all good and well for how, right? Uh, not so much. See, those guys that do that job are people that are generally functionally useless to society. They're not saving lives. They're not necessary. None of the things on Howe Street that weren't up to code or city regulation or whatever the hell else they come up with to call things were threatening anybody's lives. They were just people doing what they would with their own property. So that guy needs to write up a certain number of people every month to justify his functionally useless existence in his job. So his supervisor will go, you're doing your job. You you corrected X number of violations. So he's finally off his fat ass out from behind his computer, and he's gone out to, to look at this problem. So what's he do? He walks up and down the whole street. And he writes up Hal for a violation based on how far a canopy that came off the side of his house. It was a nice, shaded, beautiful porch on a side easement that was a place that he and I used to sit and cook burgers and drink beer and hang out. It was nice and shady and cool. It was a wonderful place. And he made him take it down because it wasn't, it wasn't allowed because of easement or zone or something. So... When he called on his neighbor, he got a more strict and more life-altering code violation from the guy he called to help him. That's what the state does. Because the state doesn't give a shit. 
The state doesn't care. The state simply wants you to shut up, go home, and pay your taxes. And if they can extort either of you, they will. They don't care. You got it? The, the biggest problem we have with this is that just like the Portuguese and the Ottoman Turks saw themselves as competition, any attempt by individuals to self-organize and solve their own problems is seen as a competition from government. We could be building much more efficient homes right now. We could be building homes that didn't need air conditioning or used very little of it in the hottest climates that we're in and didn't need electric heat and used very little of it and used very little oil heat um, and used very small amounts of wood in, in some of the, the coldest climates right now. We could do that. We don't need to put such pressure on the agricultural system. We could be designing communities with food production right in them. We could design housing developments where lots aren't even bigger, but their houses are just a little bit apart with common areas. Where And those common areas would be providing significant amounts of food. We could produce, I figured it out one time, 540 tons of food. 540 tons, oh, I'm sorry, 540,000 tons. There's the number, 540,000 tons of food was my estimate within five years of initiating a movement that I thought about and we never did called the 10% Project. And the 10% Project is simply to replace 10% of ornamental plantings in America's owner-occupied homes. 540,000 tons Simply by going Bradford pear tree, Bartlett pear tree, that's it. Just that. 10%. Got You go to a guy's house, he has 10 bushes and trees. Replace one. Do it in every property in America with an owner-occupied structure. And you produce 540,000 tons of food. Why aren't we doing it? Why aren't we doing it? Because a society that can care for itself doesn't require a government to care for it. And this is the, this is the, the real constant here about competition. Government does view any, any attempt for society to fix its own problems as competition. And so does the corporatocracy. Because it is. Because why? Why? Is it just like pure psychopathism? There's, There's a lot of psychopaths in government. And the more of a psychopath you are in government, the higher you will rise. The more of a psychopath you are in the military, the higher you will rise. The more of a psychopath in the corporatocracy are you, the higher you will rise. But it's not like there, there's millions of people making up these ranks. They're not all psychopaths. There's not that many psychopaths in the country. So why? Because of the system. Just like Placing a small amount of tinder and a small amount of kindling and then a small amount of, of, of a little bit bigger kindling and then a small amount of fuel wood and then igniting the kindling and the tinder will result in a fire because that's what that system does if it's arranged properly. All systems have certain results that can be expected if they're designed in a certain way. If you design a system that requires growth at all costs, which is how our economy works, which is how all government works. And since our economy and government work that way, for the corporatocracy, it's the same thing. Then it will be a natural response 
of all vested interests within that system to defend the system against anything and everything that replaces even one microsecond of that system's needs. Do you understand that? In other words, the government must be bigger tomorrow than it is today for it to work. All of the promises of smaller government can never happen with the type of government we have because it can't work that way. It can't function. You can't downsize D.C. It's a nice idea. It makes a wonderful poster, but functionally it does not function that way. You can't downsize the corporatocracy. It begins to fall apart. It begins to lose control. See, it's like it's like voting for a person, and then that's not just a vote for one. It's a vote against the other. It doubles down. That's where we're at with government because it's reached a, such a critical mass. Again, this is like the car that you're simulating in the wind tunnel doing 200 miles an hour, and it took a lot to get it there. But to get 201 miles an hour is harder than to get the car to go from 150 to 180. It takes more to get that one last mile out of it. That's where government's at. It can't stand. And the individuals in government don't know this. They don't understand. They don't know what they're doing. It's a collective consciousness of the whole. It's permeated. And amazingly, at times, you'll hear the honesty come out. There's a documentary I watched. I can't remember the guy's name, but the guy that pioneered the Earth ships out in New Mexico. And he was just trying to get a variance from the state of New Mexico after they took his architectural license for doing nothing that endangered anybody, by the way, on his own property, right, to be able to test these theories. So they're like, we want this piece of land. It's only going to apply here. And, and one of the ladies that worked for one of the state representatives said, you know, there's a lot of people that wouldn't really have an interest in homes that cool and heat themselves. And he's like, what? And she's like, yeah, you know, electric companies and stuff like that. <laughs> and you can tell right away she was thinking about how the government's involved in this public utility and what the hell would happen if all of a sudden this was available. It would collapse the governmental system around that apparatus. That's where you're at. You're at a point where every time you try to implement a solution, the system as a whole squashes it because it sees it as competition. And they're bigger than you, and they have more power than you when it comes to armament, weaponry, authority. But they're also a beast that's beginning to feed on itself. And while they're doing that, it creates the opportunities for us to create our own solutions And the only way that we're going to be effective in implementing them is to you know, go into a spot and implement a solution to such a level that everybody that sees it goes, I love that. You can't take that away. No. And to also do it in seclusion. To where they just don't see it. They don't know it's there. And when you go public with it, it's too big to stop. See, the way all of these solutions work is in the beginning you're ignored and you're ridiculed. Crazy loon, idiot, doesn't know what they're doing, whatever. They're going to starve. They're a bunch of dumb hippies, whatever. Okay. Then, when you begin to gain any momentum that starts to actually get success, there's a point where you're small and you're very easy to crush. You could even take the government to court, like the guy in, uh, the guy in uh, Michigan, and win your case. But a fatal blow has been struck anyway. 
you're so damaged by the attack that you die. Almost like dying from a deep cat scratch, as I talked about from Romeo and Juliet, Mercutio. A, a, a scratch whose cat is death. Okay? And they want to hit you right then. They'll ignore you because if you go away on your own or you fail, it just is lends credibility to all of you people are nuts. You get to a certain size, they smack you down, it discourages others from trying to follow. It's a very short period of time at that point where they want to smack you down to where you get too much momentum, you get too big, and what you're doing, people all of a sudden gravitate toward it. There's too much support for it, and they can't stop it. That's where we have to get to with all these solutions. Instead of saying, well, you know, if all the people in California that are farming, just watch Jeff Lawton's videos. And you know what, guys that are saying that? That's not true. That's not true. The situation there's more complex. There's a whole transitional plan that would have to go in there. A lot of Lawton's techniques would work there. A lot of them, not so much. They'd have to be adapted. They'd have to be adapted, and they could be. I mean, we could do things like if we just said, okay, I don't know if you guys realize this or not, but just because they're growing almonds and peaches and apricots and stuff from trees doesn't mean that those trees are 100 years old. Most of these trees are replaced in cycles at about 15 to 18 years. As they're replaced, these new systems that go in, if we just designed them on contour, that's all we did. Designed them on contour, deep mulch, and kept irrigating them the same way we do now. They'd use less irrigation. Even if it didn't rain. Because less of the, the, the water used for irrigation would run off. It doesn't matter if you're dripping, spraying, doesn't matter. If we then took the open canals and covered them with some sort of a crop that is arched over the canals, miles, millions of miles of it, Whatever water those plants took and used to grow as they, as they penetrated the walls of the canals, they would provide more shade value and reduce more evaporation than they would ever use. And that could become productive space. Who owns it? Who profits from it? There's the problem. How's it taxed? There's the problem. Okay. So I'm going to leave it at that today. I can't always give you all the solutions. And in this case, because I don't have them all. I just know where to start, and the start is the, the formation of groups, the formation of communities that take personal responsibility for all walks of their life and always see the power elite and the state is the last resort, never the first response. Whether it's a group of 10 or 10,000, it's a start. And I do think that permaculture holds a lot of keys to understanding, so I'm going to let you guys know about something really cool coming Really, really cool coming on Tuesday next week. I'm interviewing Toby Hemingway this week, author of Gaia's Garden. Toby is one of the most sought-out speakers and teachers in the permaculture movement. He's had a long walk. Um, he was often viewed by a lot of what I would call the purple-breathing purple permaculturists as, you know, their guy, right? Kind of dresses like a Harvard professor, uh, soft-spoken, really, really smart, really knows what he's doing, all about sharing and, and working with others. And, and, and that's always taken by those with the perception bias toward government as a solution to mean to do it all through government. Um, Toby's coming on, and we're going to talk about something called liberation permaculture. How permaculture can transfer society from eventually from being an agricultural society to a 
from and here's where we're at. We're at a we're at a consolidated distribution model. Okay, everything is consolidated. Everything is centralized, from agriculture to energy to food to medicine to government. Centralized distribution model to a distributed distribution model. A distributed distribution model is going to have to move us from an agricultural society to a horticultural society. Instead of caring for land, we care for plants. That doesn't mean we don't care about the land. But, the, but agriculture means the culture of dirt, the culture of the field, the culture of the dirt, okay? To field culture. Horticulture means the culture of the plant itself. Whether the plant's for you, whether the plant is for stability, whether the plant is for an animal, whether the plant is for shade, whether the plant is for a building material, to culture the plant itself. And his model for liberation permaculture was something that when I heard it, It kind of blew me away for two reasons. One, it's so close to what I've been talking about for so many years. And two, that it came from Toby Hemingway, who I had always taken as kind of a government type or whatever. Not the case. Really awesome guy. He's become a good friend now. I'm hoping to do some work with him in the future, maybe even have him right here at the Spirico Homestead for a class this, this coming fall. That would be an awesome thing to do. Um, he's a great guy, and he'll be here next week. And we're going we're gonna to pick up where this show's living off. We know we're headed into this place. We know there's no way that there's going to be enough technology to fix all these problems. We know that this planet cannot sustain the numbers of people we have in relative comfort. And because we're not doing it now. When people say there's room for everybody, how many people starve to death every day? How many people die of, of treatable diseases every day? How many people are stolen from every day? How many people are still put into slavery every day? Whether it's sophisticated slavery or, or, or primeval slavery. This planet is not right now capable of supporting the people that we already have. And we're taking more and more, we're asking for more and more, and we're giving less and less. And we're going to have to begin, instead of worrying about other people doing it, solving our own problems and leading by example. So Toby will be on to talk about some ways that we can do that, and some ways that we can mitigate this government competition model. This, this fact that government sees you as competition. How can you mitigate that? How can you combat that? And how can you use permaculture to do it? It'll be a great interview. Look forward to it next week. Tomorrow, I'm going to have a different interview for you. I've got a girl I'll be interviewing here in just about, a, about 15 minutes named Jill. And she's going to talk about her own emergency, her own disaster, losing everything in her life right now, and how prepping and survivalism work for rebuilding a life and salvaging a life. It'll be a great one tomorrow. With that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Seeing our food these days, you know it's on our TVs. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way.